on Textbooked. So we have a lot of laws that are passed in the late 19th and early 20th century that characterize these religions as fraud, as superstitions, as the people who lead them as charlatans, people who are intentionally deceiving. And this becomes kind of the intersection between vagrancy and civilization. It's like the idea that only European religions are civilized. And so we want to get rid of African, quote unquote, superstitions. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is the podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity. There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly am and where I come from. We can better understand the trajectory we're moving on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbook. I'm Gabe Hostin. And I'm Jordan Pettiford. And you're listening to Untextbook. Today, we're talking about religion in America. Wait, isn't that one of the things they tell us not to talk about? Sure, but trust me, you want to hear all about this one. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution was adopted on December 15, 1791. That's separation of church and state, right? Yeah. It drew a line around religion, keeping the federal government from creating any law that placed one type of religion above another. It also protected a person's right to freely practice what they believed. In North American societies, religious protections like this exist as law. That all sounds good to me. The problem is, these freedoms aren't really extended to people who practice African diaspora religions. Whoa, you were right. That's definitely worth talking about. I first became intrigued by the topic when I had an opportunity to take a Portuguese language class in college and kind of learn a little bit more about the culture in Brazil, which piqued my interest again in Candomblé, Umbanda, and other African diaspora religions that are present in Brazil and really mirror African diaspora religions like voodoo in the U.S. and in Haiti and Santeria Lukumi in other places in the diaspora. I started reading about these different African diaspora religions and the history surrounding them, and I found myself very intrigued by the laws that were set out restricting these religions from being practiced during the time of slavery. Then I started reading about the post-slavery, post-emancipation period, and I ran across Dr. Boaz's book about how this sort of discrimination against African diaspora religions continues into the present day. On this episode of Untextbooked, Jordan interviews Dr. Danielle Boaz, author of Banning Black Gods, Laws and Religions of the African Diaspora. We often fear what we don't understand. So for our producer, Jordan, A greater awareness of African diaspora religions and their practices is key. Today, we'll take a closer look at this concept of religious racism and how throughout history, fear has been weaponized to oppress the communities who practice traditional African religions. 
Hello, Dr. Boaz. Welcome to the podcast. So for our listeners, some of them might not be familiar with different African diaspora religions. So if you could give us just like a brief overview of Santeria, Candomblé, and also voodoo, so they can kind of understand individually what these religions are and what their common practices might be. Sure. So the three religions that you asked me about, Santeria, Lukumi, Kanumbe, and, and Voodoo or Voju, they are names that we give to African diaspora religions. In Cuba is where Santeria, Lukumi comes from, and Brazil is where Kanumbe comes from. And then in Haiti and New Orleans, we have practices that historically people in the U.S. have called Voodoo, but a lot of people will refer to it as Vodou and will spell it V-O-D-O-U. A few of the things that we can say are sort of common ground between these religions. One of them would be the concept of ancestor veneration. And I say ancestor veneration, not worship, because ancestors aren't necessarily like gods or something. It's just the sense, the belief that when people leave this world, they're still connected to us. And so these religions generally have a component where you still talk to your ancestors and you still seek their advice and assistance with things that are happening in your life. These religions also typically have a strong relationship with nature, respect for the natural world, the use of plants in the religion. There's also the concept of divination, which I, I like to use the word divination rather than something like fortune telling, which would be a term that most people would be more familiar with. But when we talk about divination in Africana religions, what we're really talking about is not necessarily always a telling of the future, but some kind of consultation with some kind of spirits or deities or higher entities that can tell us more about what has happened to us in the past, that can tell us more about what we need to do in the present can help us see the bigger picture of who we are in this life, what we should be doing, and, and kind of guide us on a better path. These religions in particular, Santeria Lukumi, Kanumbe, and Vodou, they all have a concept of a belief in higher beings, higher entities. Their higher entities are typically called Orishas or Loas in the case of Vodou. And these are, I would say, something close to gods, but not quite gods. Some people would, would refer to them as gods, but uh, I feel like a lot of times devotees say, you know, it's, it's not quite that. It's the idea that there is an energy, a connectedness that runs through everything and everyone. And the Orishas or Loas are kind of this very strong representation a very strong force of that energy and that they are beings that govern certain aspects of our lives. Typically, an analogy that I give to try to explain this to people who would be unfamiliar is that we typically learn about Roman and Greek gods and goddesses when we're in high school or something in the United States. And the way that they have a god of war, a god of the underworld, a goddess of love, this is similar to how the Orishas and the Loas function in the sense that there are certain entities that we consult for certain things in our lives, and they assist us in those matters. 
So those are the basic things that I would say, I guess, about these religions. Okay. I did have one quick follow-up question. So you mentioned all of these religions, they're unique. They do have some similarities, like you're mentioning connection to nature, ancestor veneration. Do they share like a common ancestor in Africa, like pre-coming to the new world? Yeah, that's a really good question. The concept of Orishas comes from the Oyo Empire. And a lot of the identifiable Orishas that are venerated in some nations of Canoblé and in Santeria Lukumi are clearly identifiable with the former Oyo Empire, the Yoruba people. But in reality, we have a lot of different African peoples, a lot, I mean, so many different societies that were coming to the Americas, that were trafficked in the Atlantic slave trade, and that made their stamp, left their influence on these religions. So yes and no, there's a common influence, common ancestry. There's also influences from other communities. All of these religions to varying degrees have influences from indigenous populations, have adopted some practices from whatever communities were already residing in the Americas when Europeans and Africans arrived. During slavery, Africans weren't permitted to practice their religions. And so in Catholic colonies, they often hid their religion behind the practice of Catholicism. And Catholicism made this really simple because African Orishas, Loas, these kinds of higher beings and entities, they look a lot like Catholic saints in how they operate sometimes. And so if people wanted to honor a particular Orisha, they would kind of go, oh, well, this Orisha is very similar to this particular Catholic saint. And so they would honor that Orisha during festivities for that saint and be able to look like they were practicing Catholicism and be able to kind of a little bit openly continue with their religious practices by disguising them as Catholicism. Okay, so you mentioned kind of briefly like the transatlantic slave trade and that you have all of these people coming from Africa to the Americas with their beliefs and trying to, I guess, to a certain degree, like preserve some of these traditions and then kind of coming up against a barrier in Catholicism and other things that were kind of, I guess, forced on enslaved peoples to a certain degree. So I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of these religions to like enslaved peoples and the concerns of, I guess, colonial powers of slaves practicing these religions. Sure. I would say that religion was kind of incorporated into society during the period of the transatlantic slave trade and slavery in the Americas, that people of African descent were coming from societies where religion was not something that was separated out from the rest of society. In the United States, we might think of concepts of someone being like a Sunday Christian. And this kind of concept didn't really exist in any African societies that, that I'm familiar with. Religion was very integrated into every aspect of society. And so everything from the time that a child is born to the rituals that are performed when someone dies, everything is not only understood 
was not only understood through religion, but performed through religion. So you wouldn't, for example, name a child without perhaps performing some kind of divination to determine what that child should be named. So everything that people are doing in just trying to understand why they're on this earth, why they're experiencing suffering, which of course enslaved people are really trying to deal with, trying to cope with at a level that other people are not necessarily dealing with at this point. What happens when we die? Is suicide something that's problematic? Because this is something that some societies, some African societies in the Americas engaged in on a pretty active basis as a way to try to resist and escape slavery. And what are your responsibilities in this life? But in the day-to-day lives, I would say that the most important thing about religion is that religion played a really important role in slave rebellions. If we look back, especially in the earlier rebellions, but honestly, I can't think of a single rebellion in the history of the Americas that did not have some component of religion in it. And in the case of earlier rebellions, this was particularly true of having African religions as an influence, as a factor in them. But then later, as Christianity spreads throughout the Americas, throughout African communities in the Americas, Christianity also becomes a factor in religion. But referring to African diaspora religions, so religious leaders would do a number of different things for enslaved people who are planning an uprising they might provide some kind of protective charms or rituals. They might perform different oaths that would bind the rebels together, kind of a oath of solidarity so that if people would agree to participate in the rebellion, then they would know that the other people who took this oath would also actually go forward with it. Or if anybody told the authorities anybody kind of chickened out, if you will, that that they would know that there'd be some spiritual consequences for that person. Spiritual leaders also had herbal knowledge. And this goes back to what I was saying about these religions being very connected to nature and dealing a lot with different plants and, and herbs and things. And so there are a, quite a few cases of spiritual leaders either actively trying to poison colonial authorities, plantation owners, or just this widespread fear of their herbal knowledge that they would have this capability. So these religions are just playing a role in virtually every rebellion, especially a lot of the big early rebellions. And colonial authorities really develop a very serious fear of these religions. And they actually start to pass a lot of laws against them because they're afraid that these religions will lead to or encourage uprisings among enslaved people. Okay, so this is kind of in like the pre-emancipation period. Post-emancipation, you kind of, I guess, have this continuation of this fear of certain Afro-religions as a... I guess, social contagion that spreads through like formerly enslaved communities across the America, South America, the Caribbean, Louisiana. Could you talk a little bit about 
legislation that was passed as like a reaction to this in the post-emancipation period in like Haiti and Brazil and other nations? Sure. So there are kind of two things, two ways that I would explain what's happening after emancipation. It does get kind of characterized, as you said, as this African religions, African diaspora religions are this social contagion, but there's sort of two reasons that this happens. And this, which reason we're, we're relying on in which colony depends on what kind of laws they pass. So the first thing that happens is that we have a lot of these colonies in the Western Hemisphere that have more people of African descent than people of European descent. And after emancipation, there are all these debates happening about what happens to Black people now that they are free. Should they be able to be a part of government? Should they be able to vote? What role do they play in society? And these debates are also deeply connected to whether or not these different colonies can prove to France or Spain or Portugal or whatever, that they are civilized enough to maybe completely self-govern. I don't know about you, Jordan, but I find this all really ironic. No, I'm right there with you. And so these colonies had a strong interest in proving that they could keep Black populations sort of under control, even if white populations, European populations, weren't the majority that they could exercise control over the population. So in some cases, this meant physically trying to whiten the population. So we see a lot of efforts, for instance, to encourage immigration from Europe and ban non-white people from coming in. And when I talk about this period, we're late 19th, early 20th century. And then alongside that, these colonies are also trying to culturally whiten themselves. So they start banning non-European practices, including religion. And so in some cases, what we see are laws that just kind of outright prohibit African diaspora religions alongside other African cultural practices as just a kind of measure to quote unquote, civilize the population and to show that just because there are now all these free Black people, that doesn't mean that these societies are going to become like little Africa's, that they'll be able to maintain this kind of European, quote unquote, civilization. In most societies in the Americas, especially those that were heavily dependent on enslaved labor, there are all these different ways in which lawmakers and plantation owners often kind of conspired or at least kind of talked back and forth about how they could make sure that there was still some control over the formerly enslaved, uh, some kind of coercion to keep them working in the same jobs that they were working when they were enslaved. And often for not a lot of money. And so one of the ways in which a lot of places did this, the U.S., Cuba, Jamaica, a number of different places, is that they would pass these laws targeting vagrancy. And vagrancy laws still exist in some places today, 
Vagrancy as a concept is, is typically about the idea of not having a job or not having the right kind of job. Or to say it a little bit more broadly, having a visible source of income or the right source of income. So these laws often criminalized other things like gambling, begging, prostitution. And what we see in the post-emancipation period is that these vagrancy laws, they really target different ways that formerly enslaved people might try to make money. And religion is a way that people could make money. Now, I don't want to make it seem like these religions are just businesses or anything like that. If you think about most religious leaders of most religions throughout the world, they are often exclusively or at least primarily employed as religious leaders. They are supported by their church, their mosque, their their congregation, right? And African religions were not much different in this sense. And so people would make money from performing spiritual rituals. And many colonies, or at this point, sometimes we're talking about countries, many different places criminalized these religions as a type of vagrancy. And sometimes they would criminalize the entire religion and just say this whole thing is an illegitimate way of making money. In other cases, they would criminalize certain practices, especially things like divination or spirit conjuring. And so these were ways to try to prevent people from engaging in these religions. Essentially, if people were prosecuted for engaging in these religious practices, then they would often be sentenced to particular types of work. And so it's like a deterrent in the beginning, but if you don't listen to the warning that, oh, these things are illegal, then we're still going to get you on the backside of this because we're going to actually sentence you to doing some kind of, in British colonies, it was what was referred to as hard labor. And we're going to force you to, to work in areas that we think we, you should be working to begin with. So we have a lot of laws that are passed in the late 19th and early 20th century that characterize these religions as fraud, as superstitions, as the people who lead them as charlatans, people who are intentionally deceiving. And this becomes kind of the intersection between vagrancy and civilization. It's like the idea that only European religions are civilized. And so we want to get rid of African, quote unquote, superstitions, but also then blaming religious leaders for the continued belief, the widespread practice of African religions, saying that, well, the religious leaders know that what they're doing is fraud. They know that these religions don't really work, that there's nothing to them, but they're making money off of superstitious people. And so in kind of the same language, we get at both of these problems, that the colonies look like they're promoting European beliefs and practices and suppressing African ones. And they're also criminalizing certain ways of making money, certain also alternative kind of sources of power and authority that religious leaders might represent and making sure that people of African descent sort of stay in their place, even though they are now supposedly free. 
Okay, so kind of building off this idea of like the illegitimacy that's being, I guess, that African religions are being characterized as during this time period. Something that you kind of touch on in your book is like how this progresses into the way that courts handle issues regarding African religions in the 20th, the late 20th and 21st centuries in the U.S., Canada and other nations. So could you talk about that for a little bit? Absolutely. These stigmas, these methods of persecution have not really gone anywhere. We just kind of ignore them a little bit. We don't see them in the same way that we are able to identify them when we're looking at the past. And so in the book, I break down a number of different types of stigmas, types of legal implications for these religions that, and I try to connect them back to these things that have happened in the past. And so a couple of the chapters, a couple of themes that you'll see in the book, for example, are one of them is child custody cases. And then another thing that I talk about is that in a number of different countries, I believe it's still over a dozen, African diaspora religions are outright legally prohibited under the laws in what is the former British Caribbean, so the Anglophone Caribbean today, laws prohibiting the practice of obia. And most people in the U.S. probably have never heard of this term, but in general, it's just a term that the British gave to African diaspora religions in their colonies. So obia encompasses a lot of different things. And it was first prohibited back in 1760 in Jamaica after Obia practitioners helped lead a major uprising. And like I said, it started to be prohibited in Jamaica in 1760, and then just these laws spread throughout the British Caribbean. They continue and become more widespread after emancipation. And basically, they just stick around until the present day. And so even though by the late 20th century, these laws aren't really enforced too much. We still see the capability of them being enforced. The laws are still on the books. And every now and then we see a case where someone is prosecuted as an obia practitioner. Essentially, the continued existence of these laws makes it difficult for people to come out and fight for their rights because if their religion is technically prohibited by law, even if it's not a law that's enforced, that definitely creates a climate where people feel oppressed and feel like they're not safe to really come out and say what's actually going on. So I talk about that alongside or, or kind of in contrast to the decriminalization of things like witchcraft and especially among white Wiccans in other parts of the world. And just basically, I argue that when we're talking about Black religions that have been characterized as witchcraft or devil worship or seen as being, it's seen in a negative light by the authorities or by the public, that these religions don't tend to be part of the movement today that includes any kind of religious belief in freedom of religion. So we protect white witches, but not black ones, essentially, if you will. And I guess before, before I end that thought, I don't want anybody to think that 
I'm saying that these religions are witchcraft or are devil worship. The two were kind of a bit interchangeable for most Europeans. But the funny thing is that of all the African religions that I'm familiar with, none of them actually believe in the existence of the devil. And so even though devotees are often accused of worshiping the devil, it couldn't be further from the truth. The devil doesn't factor into their existence at all. But this is something that we see come up a lot when people are fighting in courts over whether or not folks should be allowed to practice these religions. Like, well, aren't they devil worship? Is that really religion anyway? And these are the colonial stereotypes that we're dealing with. So there is one specific case that you mentioned in the introduction of your book that I did kind of want, I guess, to introduce to our audience because my initial reaction to it was, I guess, disbelief when I was reading it. And then as I continued to read the book, fascination with the topic, murder trial in Canada in the early 2000s that involved, I guess, the police impersonating practitioner of Afro-religions. Could you tell us a little bit about that case? Sure. So what happened in this case, it started back in late 2003 and into 2004. And it takes place in the Toronto area of Canada. And there's this sort of rivalry going on between these two gangs, or I think it's two specific gangs, one of which is a gang of kind of people of, of Black Caribbean descent, and the other gang, I believe, was Eastern European. But so these gangs are going back and forth, and they're murdering each other. And the police are trying to stop this series of murders. They're trying to catch the people who are involved. And they really have no leads. They have no evidence. They don't know how to get in front of this. And so there are these two brothers who the police suspect are involved in the Caribbean gang. And they suspect that these two brothers are involved in the recent murder of one of the members of this Eastern European gang because the brother's friend had recently been murdered by the Eastern European gang. So they thought that these two brothers had committed this other murder in retaliation for the death of their friend. So again, they have no evidence, they have no basis for moving forward with this case, with this investigation, until this Jamaican Canadian police officer says, wait a minute, I've heard that their mother believes in the existence of spirits, that she believes in obia practitioners, maybe consults obia practitioners, I think we can get at these brothers if we go through their mother. And what follows that is just kind of, I, I mean, you'd almost think it was a movie or a TV show or something because it's so crazy. The links to which this officer then went to try to get to these two brothers through their mother. So he starts off by staging a car accident, running into the mother's car with his car. And then he pretends to be this obia practitioner and he tells the mom, oh, I feel this energy coming off of you. I think you have a spirit attached to you. And then he goes through all these steps of basically trying to become her obia practitioner, trying to become the person that she consults for her spiritual needs. And 
to convince her that there's this spirit of the brother's friend that is haunting the family, the one who was killed by this Eastern European gang. And so he does so many different things to try to convince the mom that he's a powerful Obia practitioner and that he can help her and that they need immediate help because the spirit of this friend is really angry. And he does things like leaves dead animals on her doorstep to try to prove to her that some protective ritual that he had done for her was effective. And he has her consult with him over and over again, performs rituals for her over and over again. And then when nobody seems to bite here, when the brothers are not convinced that their mom has really found this religious leader who is um, convinced them that there's this serious problem with this ghost, the officer then arrests the mom on trumped up charges and then goes to the brothers and says, look, your mom's going to stay in jail. We're going to keep getting arrested until we appease this spirit. We need to do something. And so he finally convinces them to admit to being present when this guy from this Eastern European gang was murdered. And ultimately, the things that they told him were supposed to be kind of like a cleansing ritual to get this spirit off of them, to get this spirit to stop harassing their family. But then, of course, the officer goes and uses this as basically the only evidence that the police had to build a case against the brothers as well as a a friend of theirs for being the people who perhaps committed this murder or at least were partially responsible for this murder. This story is really wild. Oh, just wait. It gets even wilder. And so this case goes through the Canadian courts because the brothers say, well, wait a minute. This was a spiritual consultation. You can't present evidence like that. And one would have thought that they were right about that because there was a case from the Canadian Supreme Court a few years back that had said explicitly that the police couldn't use tactics like this that were designed to basically like put pressure on people and defraud them. And they gave the example of pretending to be a Catholic priest and taking someone's confession. And the court said this would be inappropriate. If the police did that, you could not use the evidence from that confession in court against that person. But when this case came before a Canadian appellate court, the court said, well, but this is different. We're talking about a religion that isn't about penance. It's not about seeking forgiveness for what you've done. It's about trying to sort of get away with it. It's about trying to do something, a ritual that's self-serving because they're trying to get this ghost off of them, right? And essentially, the court ends up saying, well, we're not going to say that Obia is not a religion at all, but we're going to say that this ritual or these rituals that this supposed Obia practitioner that this undercover officer performed are not religious. And so they end up allowing the evidence and allowing these individuals to be prosecuted based pretty much solely on that. 
So this is the kind of thing, I guess, that is the basis of the book is talking about how these religions are not treated equally by courts, by the public, and are often still not seen as religion when it counts. And what I'm working on now is really to try to bring awareness to the kinds of violence that these communities are facing, to try to track it, and also to understand why these communities are being targeted, what is causing these hate crimes against these communities, and what we can do to stop it. All right. That is all the questions I have for you today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. What are you curious to learn more about? I'm curious to learn more about, specifically in Brazil, the violence that practitioners of African diaspora religions have been facing. We got a chance to talk a lot about the state and how the state can discriminate against different religious groups. But we didn't really get to talk a lot about how most citizens treat practitioners of African diaspora religions or how in the 21st century, practitioners of these religions are viewed within their societies by their neighbors and their classmates. Thanks for sharing, Jordan. Our producer, Jordan Pettiford, is a sophomore at Columbia University. Dr. Danielle Boaz is an associate professor of Africana Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. You can follow her Twitter at Religious Racism. That's R-E-L-I-G-I-O-U-S-R-A-C-I-S-M. We've included a link to her work in our show notes. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you decide to listen. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Next week, we ask, how did guns divide the United States? One sort of persistent theme through the first century and a half of American history was profound efforts to disarm African Americans in particular for fear that they might rise up and overthrow a racist apartheid system that existed in America, either under the name of slavery, under the name of Jim Crow, or under the name of redlining. And so there is this long, unfortunate way in which race and racism have sort of flowed through America's history of gun safety laws. If you like the show, tell your friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. Our website is untextbook.org, and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with Pod People, Ann Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, and Michael Aquino. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer, and Cece Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening.